Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we invite your spirit and presence with us today to enlighten our minds, draw our hearts together in unity with you, and empower us to represent you faithfully in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number nine in the quarterly book of Acts, and it's titled The Second Missionary Journey, speaking of the second missionary journey of Paul. And as you think of Paul's missionary journeys, what was Paul trying to accomplish? Think that through. What was he going out to do? Was Paul going out to establish a denomination? Yeah. No. No. How about to establish a new religion? No. What was he trying to do? What was he going out for? Think of this, sir. He's going out on a journey to, to do what? Show the good news to Gentiles. Okay. Inspire and encourage. Inspiring courage. Other thoughts? Maybe to undo some of his previous work. Uh, amongst the Gentiles? I, I would imagine the stories have gotten out. Okay, all right. Certainly, he's, but he always had concern, and you see in this lesson, we'll get to it, he always goes to the, to the synagogue, so certainly to undo some of the maybe things he'd done within the, the Jewish converts. What else? What was his primary reason? To share the good news of Jesus for what purpose, if it's not to create a new religion? What's he doing it for? To clarify who God was. For what purpose? Why did they need that clarification? Their salvation. Oh, no, no, now you're getting, and what's his salvation actually mean? Healing him to get to know their God, the, the true God. And for what purpose? Heart transformation. Okay, so, so could you say Paul was out there actually trying to help people comprehend reality? what the actual condition of the human species is, their actual heart condition, who God actually is, his purpose in the creation of humankind, what happened to humankind, why there is this thing called evil or sin in the world, and God has a plan to actually fix in our hearts and minds this condition that we can then experience salvation, which is being healed or renewed. So he's trying to teach them, hey, this is reality, and you guys are in some fantasy bubble over here, living in some fantasy island with all these mythological things that you believe that aren't even real and he was trying to help them enter a world in which things made sense and actually worked for their betterment is that not what he was trying to do that's not simply trying to go out and establish a denomination or a religion he wants them to enter a reality with their creator what about christianity today 2018 what is our purpose? If we go anywhere to speak or to preach or to evangelize or to be a missionary on a missionary journey like Paul, what are we doing it for? Are we doing it because we want to help people understand reality, to experience a transformation of heart, to have a perspective on how things work? Are we doing it to convert to an organization, to promote a denomination? Is there a difference in those two? Now, they don't have to necessarily be intention or competition, but could you, if you get focused on denomination stuff, maybe miss the reality stuff? Well, it's hard to think that it's the reality part that, they're, that we're after because there are certain individuals that have quotas to reach. So the question then is, are we actually promoting in our evangelism, in our ministry, and whatever we're doing? Are we trying to reach people to help enlighten their minds to reality and how it works so that they can experience in relationship with our Creator God transformation? Or are we stuck in fantasy? A false narrative originated by Satan that actually prevents even Christians from effectively taking a message that transforms to the world. Are we, are we communicating reality as it really is in this universe as God designed it? Or are we stuck in a fantasy version that's not real? Well, what is the false narrative? I came across this quote in an old magazine, some of you may have heard of it, called Signs of the Times. It was written in 1889 by one of the founders of the Adventist Church. And let's, let's, let's kind of walk through this together. It says, when Christ came, I'm talking his first advent, it was to engage in the conflict with the enemy of God and man on this earth in the sight of the universe of heaven. But why was it necessary to wage the warfare in the sight of other worlds? Pause right there. Is this idea that there are other worlds involved in this conflict and, 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 and that are observing what's happening here, is, is this 
something that's a biblical idea or is this made up by Ellen White? And, and do we have any biblical support for this idea? How can you support the idea that other worlds and other intelligences are actually viewing and watching what's happening in this problem of sin and, and, and God's solution for it? Can you support that from the Bible? First chapter of Job. Okay, first chapter of Job. All these uh, sons of God, it says, come gathering around from him. Notice the term there, the sons of God that came. And if you look at the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 3, verse 37, it goes down, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam was the son of God, which was the representative head of the human planet, the earth, the earth. And so you could infer that the sons of God that gathered before in the chapter one of Job are the representative heads of all the worlds out there. And then Paul's statement about being as an apostle, an example to the a theater. First Corinthians four nine. We are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. So there's the good one. That's a good one. And then Peter, in 1 Peter 1.12, says, angels long to look into these things, talking about this plan that's happening here. And then in a book of Hebrews, this is out of the New King James Version, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it says, God, who at various times and various ways spoke in times past to the, the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by a son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also has made the worlds. So there is a biblical basis for this idea, very strongly supported. Is it important to our understanding of what God is trying to accomplish, the reality that we want people to enter into so that they can experience real healing, regeneration, better life here, and eternal life? Is it important for that in any way to understand what happened beyond or outside the planet Earth? Absolutely. Well, let's keep on with this quote. It was because Satan, oh, the question, remember, that was asked, but why was it necessary to, to wage the warfare in the sight of other worlds? Meaning, why did Christ have to come to earth and carry out his warfare against Satan and evil in the view of all the onlooking universe? Why did he have to do that? And here's the answer. It was because Satan had been an exalted angel, and when he fell, he induced many angels to join with him in his revolt against God's government. That's why it became necessary for all the intelligent beings to observe how God handles and resolves the circumstance and situation and deals with Satan. Now, what did Satan do? Where did Satan focus his efforts to have an impact to get angels to join him in rebellion? Where did he focus his effort? Well, notice the next sentence. He worked in the minds of the angels as he works in the minds of men today. Where does Satan do his work? Now, if you want a biblical reference for that, 1 Corinthians 10, 3-5, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. And notice what we demolish. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. So if you have a war of arguments, pretensions, knowledge, and thoughts, that warfare is in, the mind, and the central issue, according to First Corinthians 10, is a knowledge of God. That's what we are to destroy, the things that misrepresent the knowledge of God. And so that's a very biblical idea here that's communicated as well. So he works, Satan works in the minds of angels. What does Satan seek to get into your mind? What did he seek to get into the mind of angels in heaven that are sinless to get them to rebel against God? What... what yeah, but lies particularly. Was it lies that uh, the gold on the streets of heaven were actually fool's gold, not real gold? Is that the lies he tried to get them to believe? The character of God. Trust. The character of God, specifically doubts. Doubts, yes, 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 all that's true. It was like God does not have your best interest at heart. He has his own best interest at heart. And, and, and then the core issue that roots that, though, is? Fear. Well, fear is the consequence of believing the lie. God's intentions. God's intentions based around... What have we been emphasizing for two years or more in this class? Natural law. The question of law. 
It's all a question of his law and methods. Did, did, did Satan say God has, has a design law and those laws are the laws upon which reality are built and, and if you live in harmony with him, you're healthy and happy, but if you break them, it injures you. Uh, and, and, he's, and, and that's how he built things. Or did he suggest that God is, is an arbitrary dictator who makes up rules and if, he, and if he doesn't like what you're doing, if you're not behaving in the way he says, then he uses his power to hurt you. Yeah. Yeah. See, it really comes into, that's how he undermines it. Well, let's keep reading with the quote works in the minds of angels as he works in the minds of men today. He made a pretension of loyalty to God, and yet he argued that angels should not be under law. This is from the quote, angels should not be under law. Now think that through for a moment. If you're not thinking, you could just kind of go right by the implication here. What kind of law is Satan alleging and trying to introduce into the minds as being God's law. For instance, even in, with sinful beings today, with sinful natures and carnal natures that we have on earth, angels didn't have that, so we're going to dumb it down even, make it even more difficult to see the truth. So we are more difficult to see the truth than them. And even on earth today, if you were to go to people today and say, hey, you know what? You don't have to obey the law of respiration. You don't have to obey the law of gravity. That, 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 there's no reason for that law. Would people go, well, that makes sense to me. <laughs> or even sinful people go, there's something wrong with that idea. So for sinless angels to be duped in this idea that they should not be under law, it wasn't design law. The only kind of law that they would actually credibly think they might not have to be under, which is some set of rules that requires external enforcement. Doesn't the same author say that the angels were surprised and... Yes, in a different quote, not in this quote. Yes, it, it, she, she, the same author says in another place that the thought that there was a law in heaven came to the angels as something unthought of. And again, that again, think that through. Isaac Newton discovers gravity, writes down the laws and equations for gravity, and then goes down to tell people living in his day, hey, guess what? There's a law of gravity. And people would have gone, huh, a law of gravity? Never thought of that. It's just how things work. See, they never thought that, they, that, that the idea there's a law was never thought of. But you can't have an unthought of law that's imposed or imperialistic and expect any type of compliance. You can't have a law that everyone must wear, wear red shoes on Thursdays that's unthought of and expect people to wear red shoes on Thursdays. You can't have a law like that. You have to inform them of it. So any type of an imposed or imperialistic law has to be communicated so it can't be unthought of. It has to be thought of. So the fact that the law that, that governed God's heavenly sinless beings was unthought of is another evidence that it's design law, not the laws that human beings make up, not imposed. It doesn't require external enforcement. Wow, but how difficult it must have been for Satan to convince them of something that they had never thought of. Let's keep going with the quote. He inculcated his ideas, his rebellion and enmity, and hatred of God's law originated in the minds of the angels in heaven through his influence. He caused the fall of man through the same temptations with which he caused the fall of angels. Now, which is in what way? In the mind, over... We shouldn't be under law by changing how we view God's law from design law to arbitrary. And you look at that initial temptation in Eden. Did God really say in the day you eat of the fruit, you will die? Oh, no, you won't. Isn't this a lie? Which means there is nothing inherently wrong with eating the fruit. You won't die from eating the fruit. I'm not saying God won't use his power to kill you. That's a different question. I am saying if you eat the fruit, there is no reason you'll die naturally. You won't die. In other words, the idea is God has the power to kill you was understood. But sin, design law, isn't God using power to kill. Design law is the consequence that we experience. It's like, there's, did God say in the day you tie a plastic bag over your head, you will surely die? Oh, no, you won't. Now, God might kill you for it, but there's nothing wrong with tying a plastic bag over your head. This is what he's saying in Eden. God's laws are not design laws. They're simply rules. And if you actually read widely about their experience with God, and you can even intuit this from understanding they walked face to face in a relationship with God on a daily basis before their sin, 
they knew him, I will suggest, in a better way than we probably do in our own journey today. And if we know who God is as revealed in Jesus, then they knew his grace, they knew his love, they knew his kindness, they knew his gentleness, they knew his mercy, and they couldn't believe that a God like that would actually use his power to hurt them. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't kill me for taking this fruit. No, he's too kind. And you know what? They're right. He wouldn't flash out and hurt them. He wouldn't be the source of pain and suffering. He's not the source of death. He's the source of life. And so what got them to fall was a misunderstanding of God's law. Just to rule, and he won't enforce that rule, rather than his laws are design laws. And once you deviated from it, you changed yourself. And, and the actual Hebrew says, dying you will die. And the implication there is, once you deviate from my design, you'll disconnect yourself from the source of life, and you will decay and die. Second law of thermodynamics. Energy is not coming in from the source of infinite energy. You decay and die, and that's exactly what's happened. Keep going with the quote. And in this world where he proposed to work out his principles of rebellion, the battle had to be fought that all might behold the real nature and result of disobedience to God's great moral standard. Pause. What is the real nature and result? of disobedience to God's great moral standard. You see, there's the we're talking again, what's our purpose in mission? What's our purpose in going out and teaching people? There's this false view, there's this fantasy that has taken hold of the world. And the fantasy view is, originates in Satan. And the fantasy view is, well, what's wrong with the disobedience to the great moral standard? Well, what's wrong is you're in legal trouble. You've broken a rule, and the ruling authority now has a record, and he's going to have to punish you for breaking the rule. This is the fantasy. This is the mythos. This is the lie. No. You've deviated from God's design and you've seared your conscience. You've hardened your heart. You've warped your character. You love selfishness rather than selflessness. You are out of harmony with how life is built to operate. You are dead in trespass and sin. You are terminal. If something isn't done by the designer to fix what's broken in you, and what's the metaphors of Scripture? Write law in the heart and mind, circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, get the mind of Christ, be reborn, take the heart of stone out, put the heart of flesh in. Notice all the metaphors are, if something isn't to fix you, you're going to die from this condition. That's the reality, and that's what Paul is trying to teach people. Hey, you guys, you're sick in heart and mind. There's something broken in each of us. God, though, through Christ, has the solution to fix us and give us a new heart and right spirit. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. I have new motives, new principles. I'm not destined to eternal non-existence, which is where I was headed, as long as I was still operating on the selfish principles, the principles out of harmony with God's design. Didn't they do the same thing with the sanctuary? God gave them a plan to show them how to become saved, but instead they got to believe that killing this lamb is what saved them. The, the duties that they did were what saved them. So in a way, Satan gets right in with church, with sanctuary, with everything to try to move you to think differently about what the rules are. Exactly, well said. And so the fantasy, the lie, is that uh, we're in some legal trouble and God's going to inflict punishment. Keeping on with the quote, talking about Satan. Satan represented God in a false light clothing him with his own attributes. Christ came to represent the Father in his true character. Now notice these next words. It's quite profound. He showed that he, the Father, was not an arbitrary judge ready to bring judgments upon men and delighting in condemning and punishing them for their, for their deeds. It's not imposed law. That's how human judges work. That's how human systems work. This is not how God works. This is the lie. And this is what all of Christianity is teaching, that God is a law. We broke his law. He keeps a record of all the bad deeds we've done. There's going to be a judgment one day where he's going to go through the records. He's going to tally up all the ones that you haven't yet had the blood of Jesus applied to and forgiven. He's going to tally up how many hours you've got to burn in the flames. And then he's going to use his power to torture you in the flames before he kills you. And we're going to call that love and justice. And you wonder why Christ hasn't come. Because people are not even looking for healing of heart and mind. They're simply looking for legal expunging of the record. Just thinking back in the Old Testament, there's a, the episode of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. You know, we think God's arbitrary in the way he deals with people, too. Look, you know, they did this, so like, get away from their tents, everything, they're going to be swallowed up. But what they said was very, how people, how they convinced people to be on their side 
is very telling how Satan had gotten into them because um, so they got a group together and they came to oppose Moses and Aaron. This is in Numbers 16. You've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? And so you can see that's exactly the same lie that Satan told in heaven. They were expressing here and why God had to take real action against this because they were saying, we're all holy. You know, you're setting yourselves above us. None of us need you. So let's put it in some uh, more practical terms. There's a, there's a contagious disease, Ebola, that's r- r- going rapid through, uh, rampant through the community, killing people. And, and the people who are infected saying, hey, we're all healthy. There's no need for a quarantine. We should all just kind of hang out together and, and let the disease continue to spread. See, there's nothing, there's nothing harm with, harmful. This is what they're saying. And so God takes action to actually abort the spread of the destructive element there. So back to the question, as missionaries today... Are we like Paul 2,000 years ago seeking to free people from a fantasy, from a distortion of belief in which the people in Paul's day believed in God, or should we say God's? Many, many distorted views of God and God's were being taught. And Paul was out to say, hey, this is the reality. This, all this stuff over here is being taught. It's fantasy. Some may wonder why I emphasize so much the law, design law versus arbitrary rules that are enforced by an authoritarian dictator. And not only is it true that we're ineffective in taking the gospel to the world as long as we're stuck in the imperial law model, but the true gospel narrative, when we come back to design law, it actually has real-life healing, restorative consequences to us. And if we stay in the old model, it has damaging consequences to us. So here's another quote by the same author in a book called Child Guidance, page 286. Parents who exercise a spirit of domination and authority transmitted to them from their own parents, which leads them to be exacting in their discipline and instruction, will not train their children aright. By their severity in dealing with their errors, they stir up the worst passions of the human heart and leave their children with a sense of injustice and wrong. They meet in their children the very disposition that they themselves have imparted to them. Such parents drive their children away from God by talking to them about religious subjects, for the Christian religion is made unattractive and even repulsive by the representation of truth. Children will say, well, if that is religion, I don't want anything to do with it. It is thus that the enemy is often It is thus that enmity is often created in the heart against religion, and because of an arbitrary enforcement of authority, children are led to despise the law and the government of heaven. How many of you have experienced that growing up in certain church organizations and church schools where things were done in some arbitrary, authoritative way? I can tell you story after story. I remember a a young lady who who, uh, uh, went to a Christian academy, and she was a a day student, and and she came in one evening for Friday Vespers because she wanted to be part of the Vespers, and she wore a pantsuit. And the, and the, one of the faculty confronted her and said she had to go home and change into a dress before she could participate in the worship service. And she never came back again. Never came back. You know, this kind of arbitrary rule stuff, instead of saying, hey, so glad you're here to meet Jesus and spend time with him tonight. And it's not that she was dressed lewdly, she just didn't meet this arbitrary standard. No pantsuits, have to wear a dress. And you notice what's being described here is an arbitrary practice of rules that, that, are somehow woven around our belief and worship of God that actually violates design law, violates liberty, the law of liberty, and then always incites rebellion. And this, of course, is Satan's goal. Consider this quote. This is out of um, CH325. There is a divinely appointed connection between sin and disease. Pause. What do you think that divinely appointed connection is? That if you sin, God uses his power to ruin your health? Or if you sin, you deviated from the laws upon which health are built, and thus you suffer the consequences of health problems, including when you sin, you experience a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience, for those who don't understand, chronic unremitting guilt activates your amygdala, 
which cause you to have anxiety, stress. You don't sleep as well when your conscience is at peace. If you've ever been in that, you know you don't. That activates immune system. That activates inflammatory cascades. And if it stays chronically upregulated, that causes insulin resistance. That uh, increases your risk of obesity, diabetes type 2, ischemic heart attacks, strokes, osteopenia, osteoporosis. All kinds of health consequences come. Now, is that God using his power to make you sick if you deviate from his law? Or when you're not at peace in your heart, there's something physically going wrong with you. No physician can practice for a month without seeing this illustrated. He may ignore the fact his mind may be so occupied with other matters that his attention will not be called out to it. But if he will observe and uh, but he will be observing and honest, he cannot help acknowledge that sin and disease bear to each other the relationship of cause and effect. What kind of law is cause and effect? Design law. Get your mind around that. This is not, well, you broke the rules, so God's going to have to punish you with a disease now. The physician should be quick to see this and act accordingly. God loves his creatures and with a love that is both tender and strong. He has established the laws of nature, but his laws are not arbitrary exactions. Do I even expand on that? Every thou shalt not whether in physical or moral law contains or implies a promise. What's the promise contained? What's it mean? Uh, you know how the imposed law people hear that? Yes, it contains a promise that if you do what thou shalt not do, I promise to punish you for it. That's how they hear it. There is a promise. And that's a promise that God will hold you accountable and he will keep it on, a, on an accurate ledger and he will one day punish. That's not the promise. This is what I try to teach people. If you're out of harmony with the laws of health, you can't avoid getting worse. If you harmonize with the laws of health, you can't avoid getting better. You can't. It's cause and effect. This is God's design laws. Whether there's physical or moral. Do you think there's a difference in the way the moral laws work to the physical laws? So if a man cheats on his spouse, the spouse never knows. So there's no relationship consequence coming from the, the, the spouse who's been cheated on because that spouse doesn't know it's happened. Do you think the person who's done the cheating avoids consequence? Is there a consequence still? Yes, there's guilt, there's a seared conscience, there's a warped heart. They begin to lie, they begin to deceive, they begin to tell stories, they begin to fear being found out. They worry about if they've covered all their bases. They, and so they're being eaten up inside, they're being damaged. They can't avoid the consequence. It's unavoidable. That's design law. If it is, if it is obeyed, speaking of the uh, law, if it is obeyed, blessings will attend our steps. If it is disobeyed, the result is danger and unhappiness. Did you see how clear this is? The laws of God are designed to bring his people closer to himself. He will save them from the evil and lead them to the good if they will be led. But force them, he never will. Why won't he force them? Can you force somebody to love you? Can you force somebody to trust you? Can you force someone to be loyal to you? No, you can't. He will never force. Because what he wants is our love, our trust, our devotion. And that cannot be forced. And in fact, if he never forces us, what does that do with the whole penal substitution theological construct? Which says... If you don't do what he says and you don't get the proper legal accounting done, that he has a rules that you've broken that one day he will use power to punish you for it. Isn't that coercive force? The whole system is a fraud, guys. It's a lie. It's an infection to Christianity that keeps the church in fantasy and thus we can't finish the mission. We have to reject it. Get it out of our teaching. Get it out of our schools. Get it out of our theology textbooks. Keep going with the quote. Representing the law of, oh, excuse me, this is one more I just had to read. It's a different one. Review and Herald, August 13, 1895. Representing the law of God in its true character arouses the enmity of Satan. What's enmity? Hostility. Those who love God with all their heart will love the law of his kingdom. They will not only profess to be guided by its principles, but they will actually live them out. Even in a world that is no more favorable to the development of Christian principles than were the inhabitants of the world before the flood. 
A similar condition of society exists in our world today. And if those who claim to be God's commandment-keeping people do not put in practice the principles of the law which Christ came to our world to vindicate, pronouncing it holy, just, and good, they misrepresent the character and mission of their professed master. They mislead men in regard to the requirements of the law and will be stumbling blocks in the way of sinners. Now, let me ask you this. So if we promote the Sabbath... And we teach people that the Sabbath is an arbitrary rule imposed by God to test your loyalty. And if you break it, then he will be required because you're breaking his law to punish you for your broken, broken breaking his, his, his law. What, what are we doing? We are misleading people and we're a stumbling block. We're leading them away from Christ, not to him. That's what we're doing. The Lord of hosts has warned us that we shall take heed to not, he, not to misrepresent the law of his government by any unmerciful action on our part toward our fellow men. Not a thread of selfishness is to be woven into their practices. The law of God is to be lived out. Thus, in the character of God's people, a living testimony will be born that will contradict the fallacy of Satan who has declared that the law of Jehovah is arbitrary and holds its subject under cruel bondage. You see, we are to live in harmony with how God constructed reality to work. And that refutes the idea that it's just a system of rules that get you in legal trouble. No, it's not a system of rules. It's just how health works. This is what we're to be teaching the world. And David, you know, you always wonder why he says in the Psalms, how I love your law. I love to meditate on it all day long. Well, if that was just a list of don't do this, don't do the other thing, do this, do that, that wouldn't be something you'd love to do all day long. It has to be something that, that is, pertains to his heart, his relationships, and the way things really work. That's the kind of thing that can really, you can enjoy and, and meditate on that. To- and, and I will be honest, it may not be something you love at the very outset of engaging in harmony with the law. It may not. How many of you currently, currently love to exercise? (laughs) But if you had a period of time where you had been sedentary and hadn't exercised, the initiation of an exercise program in the very beginning might not be enjoyable. But if you harmonize with the laws of health and do it consistently, you actually come to enjoy it. You look forward to it. You feel better. You're sharper. Yes. I think that's because we have bought into false views of exercise. And we're being told things about exercise just like God's law that are not correct. It's not normal, natural, or important for your body to suddenly go from zero to 60. I'm not buying into the false views. I'm buying into the, to the real views of people just getting out and walking 20 minutes. Okay? I'm not talking about the Iron Man. I'm not talking about the marathon runner. I'm not talking about the extreme stuff. 20 minutes may not be the initiating step. Getting right. off the couch is initiating. But that's my point. If you've been sedentary, a 20-minute walk really may be overwhelmingly and uncomfortable and not enjoyable. That's my point. So harmonizing with the law when you've been out of harmony in the beginning, the first steps toward it might be uncomfortable. In fact, there, in fact, the Bible teaches this. There's a period of self-denial. Moving from a very unhealthy dietary habit into a healthy dietary habit at first may not be enjoyable. It may be unpleasant. I hate this food. It tastes bland. It doesn't taste good. I don't like it. Because why? You've trained yourself to, to, to enjoy tastes that you were never to enjoy. And, but if you stick with it, not only do the foods come to taste better, you actually come to have more energy. You're more vibrant. You're, you're more alive. You're sharper. Life is better if you stick with it. You can't avoid those positives. But my point is it may not feel good in the initiation. And when it comes to sin in our lives, to turn away from some sinful pattern of living that we've been doing and take ownership and set it right may be a very painful experience. It may not feel good to deal with the sin, to repent, to set the record right. That may be painful in that process. But if you do it, it leads to a better life. So I just wanted to disabuse people of the idea that, oh, immediately turning God's way, is it, it's a feel-good thing. In the long run, it is. In the short run, though, if you're out of... And so I have to tell this truism. Once there's brokenness of any kind, there are no pain-free options. If we're out of harmony with God's law in some way, moving towards harmony will almost always require some transient period of discomfort. 
just like setting a bone, going to physical therapy, getting your health back after something's broken or injured, requires some discomfort to do. All righty. So Sabbath lesson, it talks about the... um, Paul back in Antioch, first paragraph says Paul and Barnabas nurtured the church, but uh, it says uh, they had a sharp disagreement for related to uh, Barnabas's cousin Mark, or John Mark, and they had a disagreement. They split ways and went separate ways. What lessons are there in the fact that Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement such that they didn't want to work together or chose not to work together anymore? Is there any evidence that either Paul or Barnabas were lost because they had a sharp disagreement and wouldn't work together or chose not to work together anymore? There's no evidence that their salvation was lost, is there? Is there evidence that both of them were still used by the Holy Spirit to advance the gospel? Yes, there was. So, is it possible for people today who both love and trust God to have a disagreement on some point or another such that they don't want to actually work together in the ministry, but they're still both working for God and both saved. Is that possible? My father grew up in China and years later read the the minutes for the division, the people that he knew personally when he was a child and knew that these strong personalities who frequently disagreed. And he said, reading those minutes, you could see the Holy Spirit working through the disagreements to come up with beautiful plans that helped advance the work. Yes. Yes, no doubt. So those disagreements can sharpen, can help come to a better plan than either one had to start with. That can be. And the lesson points out that even though they didn't work together, that the Holy Spirit used that and both advanced the gospel in regions that maybe they wouldn't have been in if they were both together in one region. But we have to be willing to disagree when it's important to do so. So this is one of the reasons why, what you're saying, disagree because it's important to do so, that one of the principles of this ministry is that we never take the approach that we try to tell other people how they should present the message. That's not our job. We want to present the message the way the Lord has given us the ability to do it. And we would not try to silence another person who wanted to present it differently. We believe you present the truth and love, leave people free. And over the course of time, the truth is self-evident and the real message will stand apart from distorted or false messages and people will be able to make that distinction. Unfortunately, some of our people who don't necessarily share our view don't practice that method. They are aggressively working to try and silence and obstruct uh, others who don't agree with them. We, that's not our method. Sunday's lesson uh, talks about uh, Paul and Timothy. Timothy was half Greek from dad and half Jewish from mom and and uh, that Paul uh, had or recommended that Timothy be circumcised, which he was. The bottom pink, excuse me, the bottom green section says, um, think about why Paul circumcised Timothy. What should this teach us about being willing to do certain things that we might not always agree with or deem necessary, but that will serve a greater cause? So several questions about this idea. Number one, was circumcising Timothy necessary for Timothy's salvation? Was it necessary for Timothy to experience the indwelling and empowering and equipping of the Holy Spirit? Was it necessary for Timothy to be a pastor? A pastor. A leader of a church. A pastor. That's what he was. He was a pastor. No. Then why did Paul do it? What were perhaps Paul's motives? Did Paul as evidenced by the New Testament, have a very heavy burden on his heart for the Jewish people. And particularly, perhaps, the Jewish leadership from whom he used to be a member, or whom he used to be a member of. The lesson suggests that what Paul did was for a greater good, but it could be that in this one area, meaning Paul dealing with the Jews and the Jewish leadership, that Paul was vulnerable to allowing his feelings to overrule his judgment. And he made decisions based on his emotional desire, not necessarily what was actually wise. Is that possible? You might not like where I'm going, but I'll ask the question. Is there evidence? Do, is there evidence that Paul made other conciliatory decisions to appease the Jews because he was so concerned for them? Do you remember when he did a certain ritual of purification? Why did he do that? Because he needed it and felt it was important. But he wanted to, and how did that turn out for Paul? Was that, a, was, that a, was that a good way? Was that, was that wisdom? Let's meet them. It wasn't necessary, but let's just do this because that's what they expect and it won't offend them. And, and, 
I'm going to suggest maybe this circumcision of Timothy could have been in the same vein. What happens when we compromise our values, our beliefs, and notice I'm not going to say truth. I'm not going to say truth. Our, our, our values, at least our practice of what we understand is healthy, in order not to offend somebody. Is that typically the way that truth advances? That we, we hold back speaking what, what we believe, practicing, doing, living. We hold back because someone might misunderstand, someone might get their feelings hurt. So we won't actually stand for what we think is really the way it is. We'll live inside the fantasy bubble of somebody else's mind. Well, this is out of the book Acts of the Apostles, and I'm including it because I don't want to get emails this week from people who said, yeah, but what about in the Acts of the Apostles? So I'll, I'll deal with it right now. Acts of the Apostles 204. It says, uh, as a precautionary measure, Paul wisely advised Timothy to be circumcised. Not that God required it. Notice those words. Not that God required it. But in order to remove from the minds of the Jews that which might be an objection to Timothy's ministration. In his work, Paul was to journey from city to city in many lands, and often he would have opportunity to preach to Christ in Jewish synagogues, and as well as to, in other places of assembly. If it should be known that one of his companions in labor was uncircumcised, his work might be greatly hindered by the prejudices and bigotry of the Jews, as if they weren't already. So, this author thought it might be wise on Paul's part to advise Timothy to be circumcised. And even though it was not required by God. And we have the history of what transpired in the lives of Paul and Timothy in the aftermath of Timothy being circumcised. We have the history. We don't have the history of what would have transpired if Timothy had not been circumcised. And Timothy is free to say, well, Paul, I appreciate your advice. I appreciate that. I, I, I think you're giving me your best counsel. But you know what? I'm not convinced that it's not something that I need to do. And, and I'm going to pass on that. But thank you. Timothy was free to do that, wasn't he? And if he had done that, do you think he would have been rejected by God? No. But I would suggest to you we would have slightly different history. There would be some other events. Maybe there would have been a, a conversation. Maybe there would have been a, a, a general conference committee meeting over what Timothy's role and who he could speak to and to because he was. And maybe the issue would have been honed out in a more aggressive and, and final way more quickly amongst the Jews. I, I don't know. We don't know what would have happened. Maybe Timothy had been stoned. We'd have another, another Stephen. We don't know. Paul could have rejected the take of the law because it may have impeded Paul's journey, just like he rejected John Mark. That could have been too. I get emails from time to time from people who were raised to believe that Christians should not wear jewelry. There are a variety of rationales from different backgrounds and different people that argue their, their reasons why this is the case. But the bottom line is they believe it's wrong to wear jewelry. And then I would get the question, why do I wear a wedding ring? Some, some uh, have suggested that while it... Um, it isn't wrong to wear one that some have come to me and said, well, it isn't wrong to wear one because you know that certain people have a problem with it. You, maybe you shouldn't wear one so you don't offend those people who have a problem with it. People have suggested that to me. What do you all think? Should I take my wedding ring off because there are some people in the world that are offended that I'm wearing a wedding ring? No. no. <laughs> yes. I think part of the problem is... is um, there are some people that have some strong beliefs about jewelry that if you had all your jewelry on, they would never hear you. That's true. And, that, and, that, and so almost as a, almost like a courtesy thing, so you can be heard and accepted, um, would take your jewelry off because I myself see nothing wrong with so, jewelry. So what I hear you saying is, if you have an opportunity to speak to a specific person or group of people that maybe you've been invited to that you know has this prejudice or bias in that specific narrow setting you might take it. But are you suggesting that because there are people in the world that you don't even know or haven't met and haven't been invited to speak to yet that you know though there are people out there with those biases that you would never wear jewelry because you don't want to offend those people? No, I would wear jewelry. You're talking about that specific circumstance where you have foreknowledge and you... Yeah, okay. That, oh, like jewelry light. No, right, correct. And that's not the, the feedback I get. The feedback I get is I have a ministry and that I wear this uh, on the ministry and that there are people that might be offended and maybe I shouldn't wear it. Yes, uh, in the back, in the back first. 
Hand up first. Well, I think, you know, probably the jewelry isn't the first concern. The first concern probably is you don't have a tie-on. A tie-on. <laughs> Which is only textile jewelry, right? <laughs> yes. So you don't have time to hear the history of the wedding ring right now. But if I, I don't wear a wedding ring, but if, if I were living in Europe, I probably would. So this is a very cultural thing, and it has a long historical background. So, you know, you have to think about your audience. You're right. So I wear a wedding ring first and foremost because I'm married. <laughs> That's first and foremost, and I travel a lot. And I want people, without having to come up and inquire, to know I'm not available. <laughs> okay? I really want people to know that. It, it saves me all kinds of potential embarrassing and harassing and other types of experiences to have the wedding ring. It really does. It, it works that way. When I was pregnant is when I first started wearing a wedding ring because I thought I'm going around here and I'm sort of advertising for unwed motherhood to anyone who occupation. sees me. For anyone who sees me pregnant without a wedding ring, they're like, oh, well, you know, she must think getting pregnant without being married is a good idea. I didn't really want to promote that either. It sends messages one way or the other. And the second reason I wear the wedding ring is because I want to stimulate people to think. I want them to question. I want them to evaluate. I want them to ask why. And then be fully persuaded in their own mind. This is an issue of Romans 14. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. I will promise you guys, salvation is not dependent on wearing or not wearing a wedding ring. There's no direct bearing on salvation at all. Mark. It appears to me that there seems to be no right or wrong in this. It's not a question of individual conscience. If we're going against your own conscience where you are, then that would be um, your factor in making a decision whether you're going to become more adaptable to your audience or whether you don't. Is it going against your, um, your understanding as far as what is destructive and what is healthy? That's exactly Romans 14. Yep. Uh, Wendell, quickly. Whenever Paul says to the Jew, he was a Jew, to the Greek, he was a Greek, he's speaking specifically to certain groups that he was at that point. He was not, the, he couldn't have been the Jew to the Jew at the same time he was a Greek to the Greek. Exactly. So he didn't change his way of living. To specific areas, he became specific arguments, specific discussions, specific behaviors. Just like when you're invited to speak at a graduation, you put on graduation regalia. Yeah. Okay? But you don't walk around in graduation regalia all day, every day. <laughs> when the circumstance and situation makes it most reasonable to do so, it's most reasonable to do so. All right, great. Good point. All right, Monday's lesson talks about when Paul arrived at cities, he often go speak in synagogues. Uh, and that's true. It's historically true. The question is, do you think Paul was a scheduled speaker? When he arrived in the city and went to the synagogue to speak, he was a scheduled speaker. He was on the ticket. There's a program, advance. Um, do you think Paul had an agenda when he went to speak? Yeah. What was Paul's agenda? Was it to build up the local congregation's theological pastoral leadership and the message that the local synagogue was teaching? Do you think that was his agenda, coming here to reinforce the message of this institution? Or was he there to, let's say, if not challenge, certainly expand to a new level of comprehension the historical message of the synagogue. Isn't that what he was trying to do? He was trying to take their scriptures, their symbols, their culture, and he was trying to reinterpret them into the larger reality of what they really mean. They don't mean this. They mean this. That's what he was trying to do, wasn't he? Do we have opportunity today to go into a Sabbath school or a Sunday school to take the Bible and take the culture of that group and help them see it in a larger light? And then how was Paul often received when he was doing this? Appreciated, welcomed, thanked, stoned. <laughs> criticized, stoned, yes. Yes, and why is that the case? John three nineteen and 20, notice what Jesus said. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now, this hit me this morning quite uniquely because... 
But by the way, have you ever experienced this when you're somewhere presenting the truth that just like Paul, you get attacked? You experience that? So have I. And Jesus says one of the reasons that people oppose the light is that their evil deeds will be exposed. There's a gentleman who has spent an inordinate amount of time and energy over the last eight years um, actively online and around the circle, writing articles and papers against me in this ministry, and even goes around places handing out cards to tell people how I teach heresy, and he's still active in doing this. And when I had an opportunity to speak to him, his, his issue, he said to me, he says, do you believe that when we confess our sins, that God erases them from the books in heaven, and then in the future, that no one will know our sins? That's what he asked me. And I said, I believe God is wanting to erase sinfulness out of the hearts, minds, and characters of his people, but he's not into erasing history so that we get there and we have no idea of anything. And he goes, that's what I thought. You don't believe the scripture. Notice what Jesus said. The reason they don't come into the light is because they're afraid their evil deeds will be exposed. This guy is afraid his evil deeds are going to be exposed. And so he's opposing the message. When they use the text that says your sins will be thrown into the depths of the sea and I will remember them no more and stuff like that. They do, and, the, and, that's, and they interpret them through the lens of their biases and their imperialism, and they don't interpret them in the lens of what it actually means under design law. And under the design law lens, you have a child with leukemia, and your child at age five had leukemia and had all types of sickness and all types of problems, and you've treated the child now, and the leukemia is in remission. And when you see the child from now on, do you remember all the sickness or you celebrate the health? Now, do you have amnesia for the sickness? No, but you don't have to think about it. You don't have to think about the special um, you know, uh, mask that they have to wear and all the special things you have to do to protect them. You don't think about any of that stuff. It's forgotten. That doesn't mean there's amnesia. And that's what those texts really talk about. As far as the way I'm going to treat you, you'll be treated as if you were always well. But that doesn't mean we don't have... And in fact, any thinking person under no, understands this. The woman who gave, put the ointment on Christ's feet and he was being criticized, Jesus said something. Those who are forgiven much, love much. If we don't remember what we've been forgiven of, guess what that does? It undermines our love. You have a child that was dying of a, of a terrible disease. Think about it, you've loved for your children, and, you, and they're dying, and, they're, and there's no hope, but a doctor comes in, and he cures your child. One pill, child's completely healthy. Do you have appreciation for that doctor? Do you love that doctor? And he did it for free. Do you love that doctor? But tomorrow, you go to sleep tonight, you wake up tomorrow, and your child's still perfectly healthy, but you have no memory of the sickness. You just know your child's healthy. You have no memory that they were sick and no memory that they're... Do you still love the doctor as much? This is what the devil wants. He wants ideas that undermine our capacity to love and appreciate God. And this is the corruption of the imperial law system. It's a fear-based system. And this idea that, well, it'll be record, and we won't have any... It's all based on fear. It's not based on love. I'm afraid nobody could like me if they knew. This is the corruption. Okay, I've got to get to this issue. I think it was quite profound in the lesson. Um, in the third paragraph, it says, Paul and Silas' answer to the jailer's question is in full harmony with the gospel since salvation is entirely through faith in Jesus. We cannot conclude from this episode, however, what we cannot conclude from this episode, however, is that belief in Jesus is all that is necessary for baptism at the expense of proper doctrinal and practical instruction. <laughs> and then I wanted to jump to Friday's lesson because they quote one of the founders of the Adventist Church in the book called Testimonies, volume 6, page 91 and 92. This is what they quote. There is need of a more thorough preparation in the part of candidates for baptism. The principles of the Christian life should be made plain to those who have uh, newly come to the truth. So, what do you understand the lesson means when the lesson uses the words proper doctrinal instruction. Indoctrination. Uh, That's that's what I hear too. Uh, Maybe we're mishearing it. Maybe it's my negative biases, the lens that I have on. Maybe that's not their intention at all. I just want to know whether I'm outside the norm or that's kind of a consensus what most people hear. Am I outside the norm? Is that what you all heard too? That when somebody comes to Jesus, gives their heart to Jesus, that before they can be baptized, they have to be indoctrinated into a code of system of fundamental beliefs and so forth and so on. Is, is that the biblical model? I look at it a little differently. I look at it as though, I mean, the beliefs are founded in something. Usually it's a belief about a truth about God. Let's say the state of the dead or something like that. If you are bringing someone to the truth about God, would you neglect 
to present that aspect of God when, and, and allow them to just, you know, go forward to the total misunderstanding of the way God handles men. Okay, so what you're saying is that before somebody can be baptized into Jesus Christ, they have to accept the Trinity. Or before they're baptized in Jesus Christ, they have to accept the penal payment of our sins to pay for the, 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 you know, the proper payment that Jesus made for our sins. Or, or, or that they have to accept that Ellen White was a prophet before they can be baptized into Jesus. No, that's just people being baptized in the church. Okay, so I'm just clarifying. Are, are you saying they have to accept these things? They have to accept the role of angels before they can be baptized into Jesus. They have to accept all these doctrinal points before they can be baptized into Jesus. Is that what you're saying? I don't know how long of a travel it was, but unit. Um, I don't think it went through all of the studies. He was studying the book of Isaiah. <laughs> yeah, he was studying the book of Isaiah. But, uh, but you do have to know what you're doing. I like, I like, uh, Rachel, I love you. <laughs> That's so good. So good. Well, it says that the, the church should be more diligent in presenting the doctrine. The quote doesn't say anything about... Which quote? The, the last one, the okay. Friday's lesson. Okay, no, so this, yeah, I'm talking about, in, it, it, in the lesson, the lesson authors write that, uh, that proper doctrinal instruction. Now, the, the Friday quote um, said, more thorough preparation of parts of the candidate for baptism. Yeah, but it also says that, that those who are shepherding the person to baptism should be more diligent in presenting the principles. Principle. Yes. Yeah, it doesn't say that we should coerce the individual into believing them. But... Right, so i got to try to bring this to closure. You can be saved without being baptized. So, so I'm, I'm trying to bring this to closure. Okay, talking about the ritual baptism right now, because that's what the lesson's talking about, the ritual baptism, the water baptism. Uh, if we look at the biblical model, is this model that they're suggesting that they have to go through doctrinal instruction prior to baptism a biblical model? No. When they came to John the Baptist, the first, first baptism we really see in Scripture, John the Baptist. Repent. Uh, right, repent, but was it, what, did they go through doctrinal classes first? Or is it repent and then you're baptized that day, right then, let's do it, let's get it done. Okay, and then we're told there's another baptism later. You weren't baptized into John, but you weren't baptized into Christ. There's a second baptism here. Um, and do we have any evidence that when people said, hey, like the jailer here or other people wanted to be baptized, as soon as they came to that conviction and awareness of Jesus Christ, was their doctrinal classes first or baptism right away? Peter's, Peter's um, Pentecost speech, 3,000 people. Okay, so the biblical model is not really like this. So what is being suggested? Um, is there a danger, though, to having no preparation? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. So, so is there a danger to having too much preparation? Yes. Yes, so what's the balance? First off, I think it was already said, is water baptism necessary for salvation? No. Is there a baptism that is necessary for salvation? What is the baptism that is necessary for salvation? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Immersing your heart into God via the Holy Spirit. That is the baptism that is and I'm going to suggest to you that's the preparation. <laughs> the preparation that they have, they have to be prepared to actually understand not a profession of faith. Can people profess a faith without actually having a heart converted? Okay. And then, but an understanding of what the profession, a genuine profession means with a converted heart, that there's an expectation of a changed life. That we live differently. That's part of the understanding of what it means to be a Christian. We don't just do some legal accounting on a book and a record somewhere that we're now counted as a legal Christian, like Constantine. So um, they, they made a partial quote from Ellen White to kind of support this idea that there needs to be bigger preparation. But I thought I'd, I'd read you the more larger quote and see what Ellen White actually said the preparation needs to be. And listen to this. Two quotes. One's evangelism, page 308. The preparation for baptism is a matter that needs to be carefully considered. The new converts to the truth should be faithfully instructed in the plain, thus saith the Lord. The word of the Lord is to be read and explained to them point by point. All who enter upon the new life should understand, all who enter upon the new life should understand prior to their baptism the Lord, that the Lord requires what do you think the Lord requires? According to this author. The undivided affections. That's what he requires. The undivided, that you love him. Above all others, that's what's required. Um, the, pra the practicing of the truth is essential. The bearing of 
the of fruit testifies to the character of the tree. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. There is need of a thorough conversion to the truth. So what is this now saying, this author saying is, is needed to happen? That before you're baptized in water, go through this, understand what it means. It means that you've actually had to change your heart. You come to love God and others more than self. That's all that it means. That's what you need to understand. It's not some joining a club and this is a ceremony of joining the club like the sorority or fraternity. That's not what it means. And then one other quote, this is out of Evangelism 308, same page, just a couple paragraphs later. There is need of a more thorough preparation on the part of candidates for baptism. They are in need of a more faithful instruction that is has usually been then has usually been given them the principles of the christian life should be made plain to those who have newly come to the truth none can depend upon their profession of faith as proof that they have a saving connection with christ we are not only to say i believe but to practice the truth it is by conformity to the will of god in our words our deportment our character that we prove our connection to him and so it's basically saying that the water baptism is merely an expression of the fact that you've come to surrender your heart to him and you've been reborn in the inner person. And that's what you need to understand. And that's the indoctrination, if you want to use the word indoctrination, not into attestation of certain beliefs, but into the meaning of what real conversion is. That's what this author said, which is to me different than doctrinal instruction. Because somebody can have a real conversion to Christ and love others more than self and live a life that brings forth Christian fruit and have two people, both of them with hearts that are like Christ and live like Christ. One wears jewelry, one doesn't. One's a vegetarian, one's not. One goes to church on Sabbath, one goes to church on Sunday. One was sprinkled, one was immersed. You can have a lot of doctrinal differences, but both of them have been reborn and live a Christ-like life. And that's the danger of making this about the having the right doctrines because then it incites this fear of an imperial nature, level four thinking, that if I have the wrong, wrong rules, if I have the wrong set, if I have the wrong doctrinal belief systems, then somehow I can't really be in the right relationship with God and I'm lost and I live in fear instead of having a love relationship. It's all behavior and am I doing it right? And, and if I'm not doing it right, then maybe I've got a demerit in heaven and if I don't confess that demerit, then God's going to have to punish me. And we don't have the joy and the joy is crushed by the doctrinal instructions. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the creator God who has built reality to operate in harmony with your beautiful character of love. And we ask that your spirit of truth and love be poured out to enlighten our minds and more than enlighten our minds to take the achievements of Christ, the perfection of Christ and reproduce it in us that we do get new motives, new desires, new insights, new capacities for loving in a deeper and more profound way. We pray in your holy name. Amen.